System detects time stream error. Horrific error. anomaly detected. Must reset time stream to continue hero adventure. Error. Horror month protocols now active. Horror across the decades detected. Welcome nerds to the darkest timeline. Welcome to horror month. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, on this week's podcast, Horror Month continues as we count down our favorite horror films of the 1980s. Also, we're breaking down episode 8 of She-Hulk and episode 5 of Andor. Plus, Christian talks some House of the Dragon. And of course, we're discussing all the latest AEW drama. All right, but before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing Nerd Show swag. Let's get into the news. Every week, we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters. We're mere podcasters with opinions. Warning potential spoilers for upcoming films and shows ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been warned. Alright, up first, the MCU's upcoming mega-event film, Secret Wars, has tapped a writer. The Hollywood Reporter claims that Loki's head writer, Michael Waldron, will be set to write for Secret Wars, this coming after his works on both the Loki series and Multiverse of Madness, which seems like a you know an obvious fit for a film like Secret Wars, which is set for a November 7th, 2025 release. I think this choice by Foggy makes perfect sense. I mean, this is the writer who basically kicked off the entire like multiverse saga. So, I mean, you might as well be consistent here uh you know and he you know tackled it once again in you know dr strange multiverse of madness some mixed results but i mean i enjoyed what he did in loki a lot so um i'm totally happy with this pick and i mean we'll see what you know happens with a different director on board with the writer as well so i mean it could be a different play when rabies not involved you know <laughs> no 100 percent. i mean I'm, a director like sam raimi has a lot of say so I'm sure that definitely factored in with the direction that the film went into. So, um, but yeah, I think it makes sense to have the writer, you know, who started everything off, just, you know, see it completely through. All right, moving on to more Marvel news. The MCU might be planning some more specials in the near future. Cosmic Circus has come out stating that Werewolf by Night will not be the only Marvel special presentation we're getting at Marvel Studios, as they are very interested in developing many more of these and even considering taking you know some of those Disney Plus series that they have pitched and making them into you know more of these one-off specials. You know, for me, I could see the potential of projects like Captain Carter being made into one-off specials, but I do hope that if they have a story worth multiple episodes, that they do cons you know they do still consider to put that out. But at the same time, I do think it would be an easy way to explore lesser-known Marvel characters, which may even be a draw to the Disney Plus um, service. Yeah, I mean. If you think about it, it would really almost serve as like a pilot episode, too. Yeah. You know, where, you know, you kind of give them this like 45 minute special, see how fans react, and then you could do a bigger series down the line if you want, or, you know, even give them their own movie. So why not? Now, you mentioned Captain Carter. That's the What If series, correct? That they yes. were, you know, there, there were rumors about. Uh, and then I know there was also rumors about Nova and possibly Wonder Man both getting, you know, their own individual series. And then uh, Ryan Coogler's uh, Wakanda series. 
So, I mean, those are all, you know, ripe, I feel like, for, you know, a standalone special if they choose Mm -hmm. to go that route. Especially, you know, characters like Nova and Wonder Man, who maybe you want to, like, test the waters with at first. And who knows, if those are all successful, maybe we end up getting, like, a Leapfrog special. I'd hope not. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to see, like, something like Squirrel Girl. Get yes. like a one shot. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of potential behind the character. Mm. So I think she'd be a hit. Like, I feel like a whole Great Lakes Avengers like special would no. make sense. No, no, no. No one wants to see a flat man special, dude. That's <laughs> not... <laughs> no, I mean, we have to pump the brakes, you know, at Squirrel Girl. I feel I feel like that's as far as I'm willing to let them go. All right. Up next, we've got some Blade news. Last week, we talked about Blade's director, Basim Tarek, you know, dropping out of the project and how we feared there may be some delays now because of it. And it seems that may be the case as rumors are coming in that Blade's filming will now be delayed into next year. Big screen leaks on Twitter claimed as such, with them also searching for a director to get the project back on the move, you know, as soon as possible. Meanwhile, though, Blade has added a new writer, replacing Stacy um, Osei Kufer, which I hope that's how you say that, with X-Men 97 writer uh, Bew DeMeo, which comes after some rumors swirled about, you know, the former script being lackluster with only two action scenes, which apparently frustrated lead star Mahershala Ali, which was uh, acclaimed by industry insider jeff snyder well if that's true i mean i don't blame him for being frustrated because uh-huh. it's a fucking blade <laughs> film there's gotta be more than two action scenes that makes no sense whatsoever I mean, the original opened up with that amazing blood rave so i mean come on now like you know everyone's going to be comparing you know this film to their original movie which in my mind's a fucking classic so i mean you got to bring it when it comes to the action you know, with Blade. You know, Snyder would go on to state like stuff like, you know, maybe because Feige is being stretched so thin over all these different projects is why a script like that could even get through, you know, and approved. Yeah, I mean, and Mahershala is such a talented actor, you don't want to lose him. No. So that would be devastating for the project. So you, you got to keep that guy happy. Well, moving on, the upcoming Bad Bunny Spider-Man spinoff, El Murto, has found its director. The Bad Bunny-led El Murto film has found its director in Jonas Caron, who is the son of Alfonso Caron. And while Jonas doesn't have too many films under his belt, he has worked with his father on several projects and has directed his own film like Deserto. Also on for the project is Garth Dune, who had been writing on Blue Beetle. The film is set for a January 12th, 2024 release. Based from what I know about the character in the comics, which, I mean, he was only literally in two issues of Spider-Man, um, I do feel like there is potential, though, with the story. But at the same time, I'm hesitant to get excited because this is a Sony project. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't know too much about Jonas Curran, but I, I like Alfonso Curran's work. <laughs> I like his father's work, so I don't, I don't know. Well, hopefully the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Well, in more comic book film news, Todd McFarlane gave us an update on the upcoming Spawn film. Todd McFarlane recently announced that he has brought on Scott Silver, who worked on Joker, and Malcolm Spellman, who worked on Falcon and the Winter Soldier, to write for the next live-action Spawn project. Both writers are still booked up on working on these sequels, you know, with like Joker Folly Ado and, you know, Captain America New World Order. But we will see what comes of a new version of Spawn, which still doesn't have a release date just yet. Did they mention whether or not Jamie Foxx is still attached to the project? So far, yes, Jamie Foxx is still a part of this project, but uh, you know there hasn't been too much progress on it, it seems. 
This movie has just been in like developmental hell for the last like uh-huh. decade or so. It feels like, um, no, I mean, being a comic book fan in the nineties, I was a huge fan of McFarland's initial run on spawn. Spawn is a real interesting character who has a great like mythology behind him. So it just feels like a missed opportunity that we don't have like a full, like spawn franchise already at this point. Um, but hopefully Mark, I did recently rewatch part of the original spawn film, Christian. Oh yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of cool to really just soak in the '90s of it all, but it doesn't really hold up. Okay, <laughs> I figured. <laughs> Have you seen it before? Yes, I've seen the Spawnphobia. Now the HBO uh, series, the animated series, was just amazing. So I mean, I, I highly recommend checking that out. And if you think about it, it's just ridiculous that they haven't tried to do like some kind of like follow-up series. I mean, Spawn is just so ripe to be like reintroduced into the mainstream it's just crazy that it it, you know that it's really like missed out you know over this huge like boom period for the superhero genre you would think someone like either amazon or netflix would have picked this up real fast you know especially with how popular everything outside of marvel has uh, been able to be you know do like an animated series uh like they did with uh invincible Exactly. In a quick DC story, Henry Cavill is said to be returning to the red cape as Superman after demands by Dwayne Johnson made sure he would be a part of his upcoming Black Adam film. Industry insider Devin Farasi claims Cavill has signed on for not only cameo appearances, but a feature length sequel to Man of Steel. While these are just rumors right now, the notion of Cavill coming back has been resurfacing multiple times over the last few months. So will we see Henry Cavill come back as Superman in Black Adam? We'll have to wait and see on October 21st this year. Well, moving on to horror, we've got an update on two highly anticipated films. A couple of horror casting stories this week. We heard from uh, Deadline that Bill Skarsgård is set to play Nosferatu in Robert Eggers' adaptation of the original. It's also been said that Lily Rose Depp is in talks to co-star. And in the Conjuring verse, Tasia Farmiga will be reprising her role as Sister Irene in The Nun 2, which is set for a September 8th, 2023 release. First of all, Bill Skarsgård as uh, Nosferatu is just amazing casting. Uh, I'm really looking forward to what Eggers does with Nosferatu. When is this supposed to be coming out? Uh, nothing's been put on the schedule just yet for this film. I feel like we've been talking about this movie f- for at least over a year at this point. So hopefully with this casting news, that means the movie's like well on its way. And while mm-hmm. I wasn't necessarily the biggest Northman fan, I mean, I love what he did with The Witch uh, and Lighthouse. So I can't imagine what he has in store for us with Nosferatu. When I realized Tasia Farmiga was related to uh, Vera Farmiga, <laughs> which is absurd because they both look so, which is absurd because they both look so similar and they have the same last name. Honestly, I, I didn't pay attention to it till this article. I was like, oh, wait a minute. I know that name. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm not alone. Um, she's she was the girl, the daughter in the first season of American Horror Story, right? Uh, yes, that's what I thought. I mean, she was she was fantastic in the first nun. Honestly, she was probably the strongest part of that movie. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it makes sense to bring her back. But anyway, lastly, we got an update on the long talked about trick or treat sequel. 
At a screening for Trick or Treat at Beyond Fest recently, director Michael Daughtry announced that Trick or Treat 2 is in active development, with Legendary on to produce. While Daughtry continued to say that it isn't necessarily greenlit just yet, he did share his excitement for the possibility. You would think with the cult following that this film has been able to like cultivate with no help from the fucking studio, <laughs> um, that a, a sequel would just be a shoo-in at this point. Mm -hmm. But with how mishandled the original's release was, um, I wouldn't be surprised by anything. Now, I think five or six years ago, Daughtry actually announced a sequel, you know, for Trick or Treat. Um, but then I'm guessing that his schedule just got in the way. Um, just recently during, I believe, the press tour for Godzilla, I think he was saying, you know, the sequel was hopefully the project that he was moving on to next. Um, hopefully that's true. Because, I mean, the film has really, like, you know, gathered a lot of steam over the last, you know, decade or so. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's trick-or-treat merchandise now everywhere which is crazy for a film that was never really released in theaters like it never really got a huge like theatrical run and what's fucked up about it was it was originally supposed to get like a big push by the studios and i think it was because of some stories in the news at the time they were worried about releasing the film um because of the bus scene um where you know children are you know murdered you know sadly mm -hmm. so you know which I don't know, man. Like, so it like sat on the shelf for a couple years, I think. Um, and we actually had like NECA actually like release toys and shit for it. And there was no movie. So like they were like just kind of like screening at different like fests and everything. And then finally they just like threw it out there on DVD. So, but I mean, once again, that says a lot about the movie that it, it's become such a cult classic with little to no support from the studio. I mean, here's a million dollar idea. Godzilla versus Sam. There you go. That is the dumbest thing you've said <laughs> in a long time, Christian. <laughs> anyway, that's it for the news. Well, Godzilla versus you. <laughs> I'd pay to see that. <laughs> Well, Christian, with only one episode left before the finale, it's time to break down She-Hulk. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for She-Hulk ahead. You have been warned. Yourself as a guard frog? Yeah, but my name is Leapfrog. Yes, that has been noted several times, Mr. Patilio. Cool. So, your defective suit? Right. So I was surrounded by these huge guys. Twisting Tojin! Although I was outnumbered, I, uh, I could tell that they were afraid of me. So, in order to de-escalate the situation, I shouted my signature catchphrase. Time to rip it and rip it! This week on She-Hulk, we're introduced to the evergreen Leapfrog as we kick off this episode with a suit malfunction after Eugene fails to take on a couple of robbers. Unfortunately, when he attempted to rip it and rib it, his suit's thrusters actually catch his legs on fire. And what frog can really jump without its legs? So this scene was hysterical. Um, <laughs> although, I'm not gonna lie, I really kind of dug the suit. Uh, but yeah, no. 
he's pretty inept as a hero, as we'll see later on in the episode. Eugene Patilio so happens to be the son of another wealthy client over at GLK&H, so of course he wants none other than the law assistance of She-Hulk as he attempts to sue his suit creator for pain and suffering due to a faulty suit. But as we know, the suit's creator is Luke Jacobson, who created Jen's new digs. And when Jen brings up her conflict of interest to Holloway, he again shows little care for her personal issues with clients. So in the comics, Eugene actually goes by Frogman, and his father is a villain uh, who went underneath the name Leapfrog. So Eugene is more heroic than he is portrayed here um, on the show. Um, he, he's definitely a buffoon in the comics, but he's definitely not as much of a rich douchebag as he is here. Yeah, but the more I think about it, you know, it's like... I could see a Peacemaker-like show with this character. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Jen attempts to smooth things over with Jacobson and get him to agree that he gave Eugene a faulty suit. But with his pride and reputation on the line, Jacobson instead destroys the very dress he was making for She-Hulk and bans her from ever getting his services ever again, which brings Jen to then vow that she's going to take him to court. Yeah, you knew that confrontation wasn't going to end well. So I wasn't surprised <laughs> at all by this. In court, we meet Luke Jacobson's representation, who is none other than Matt Murdock, attorney at law, who gives Jen a run for her money as he successfully stops Jen's motion to get a client list from Jacobson, which would expose a lot of secret identities along with his own. In this moment, we learn that the Sokovia Accords have been appealed, answering one of our biggest legal questions in the Marvel Universe. Hallelujah, we finally got clarification on the Sokovia Accords. Yeah. I mean, something we've been asking for for a couple years now. But yeah, no, uh, we didn't get any other information like why this occurred, <laughs> why, you know, the reversal. Uh, but at least it's a nice tidbit of knowledge that will help kind of explain certain things, like why there's a dude running around dressed up like a frog in California. <laughs> I will say on the other hand, though, it does leave me a lot of questions for damage control and what they were doing <laughs> during uh, Miss Marvel. I mean, you're not wrong. Obviously, they've been sanctioned um, I, I, by who or why. We'll have to wait and see, I guess. Unfortunately for Jen, Eugene didn't disclose the fact that he went against the suit's instructions and put jet fuel in his rocket boots, which the heightened senses of Matt Murdock picked up. Going against the instructions of the suit immediately gets Leapfrog's case thrown out by the judge. And justice is served. After the trial, Matt tries to smooth things over with Jen at the Legal Ease bar. While he admits to having gotten suits from Luke before, he doesn't necessarily disclose that he is a hero. Either way, Jen is clearly attracted to the always smooth Matt Murdock, but before things can go any further, both get calls from clients forcing them to go their separate ways. Yeah, you could really like cut the sexual tension with a knife here, which I was totally cool with because I mean, I think they make an awesome couple, a couple that I don't, I don't believe we've ever seen in the comics before. Like, I don't even know if they've hooked up. It, it, it's weird because it, they do make sense together since they're both fucking mm -hmm. lawyers, right? <laughs> yeah, I could totally see it, but I don't think I they, ever remember reading no, anything. Yeah, with... they have huh. something huge in common. So, but I don't know. That's never <laughs> happened. Maybe that's the reason. Maybe that's why writers are trying to just say hey, they're too too close. <laughs> you're, I think you're giving some writers way too much credit, Christian. Probably. <laughs> it's unfortunate that, you know, Black Widow is dead 
in this universe because I mean Matt and Black Widow had a long standing relationship allegedly which, dead which I mean could have been really cool to see play out on the screen uh huh she can always come back no yes of course <laughs> it is <laughs> comics even if they're on the screen it's still comics uh huh Jen begrudgingly meets up with Todd, who claims he has, you know, a legal emergency, but it felt more like an excuse to just sit with She-Hulk. Todd goes on about having bought an authentic Wakandan spear and that Wakanda is asking for it back, hence why he's attempting to get some legal aid here, but of course he can't help but try to get a little touchy-feely with Jen and ends up getting squished by their dinner table as She-Hulk bails out. Todd is just the worst, man. Holy yeah. shit. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, if that spear and everything with Wakanda is going to come into play somehow. Um, if not this season, maybe, you know, next season. It would be funny to see the Dora Milaje show up in another one of these Disney Plus shows out of nowhere. Oh, and just beat the fuck out of him? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for that. And there were people wondering if the spear was like what they used to make the new needle. Uh, I could see that. And maybe like Todd calling, you know, Jen away was almost like a distraction and like part of the uh -huh. Intelligentsia's plan. Because um, yeah. I still feel like he's involved somehow. Jen doesn't really get a moment of reprieve this week as when she gets home, Eugene calls her frantically asking for the aid of a Hulk as someone is chasing him down. What we come to find is that Daredevil in his yellow and red glory is attempting to stop Eugene. But before Jen can find out why, the two of them brawl with Jen being able to overpower the more limber Daredevil. This whole sequence was fantastic. Um, Daredevil feels much more like comic book accurate when it comes to like his abilities, um, you know, at least compared to like the Netflix show. Uh, you know, it, it's almost very similar to what the MCU did with like Kingpin, um, mm -hmm. who was, you know, very much like his comic book counterpart when it comes to like, you know, his strength and everything. It's a lot less of a grounded approach, but it makes perfect sense for the MCU. Well, exactly. I mean, he had to be slightly leveled up to match she Kingpin, right? Or or even She-Hulk. Yeah, like yes. in this fight, because he <laughs> uh -huh. would just die. Now, she obviously <laughs> takes him out pretty quickly, but yeah, no, he wouldn't be able to survive, you know, five seconds with, you know, She-Hulk. Though she doesn't know his strength level, like she just throws a car at him. Well, also, you would think being a lawyer, she'd be a little more cautious about, uh -huh. like, you know, destruction of private property, but apparently not. Nope. Because <laughs> she pretty much demolishes that parking garage, so. I mean, isn't this why we had the Sokovia Accords uh -huh. to begin with, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then to top things off, like, her, like, identity is known by the public. So you would think that there'd just be a line of lawsuits waiting for her. Uh-huh. So <laughs> it's okay. Whatever. <laughs> Let's not overthink it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Maybe there's some kind of like clause in the law where it protects superheroes from being liable for property damage. I mean, it's a stretch, but I, I could see them trying to pull something like that off. I'm sure the insurance companies and like construction companies are happy, at least, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's <laughs> the whole purpose of damage control originally yes. in the comic. And that's how they got started here in the MCU. I mean, I mean, the first time we see them is when Michael Keaton's characters, uh, 
uh, cleaning up after the Battle of New York during uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. So I have no clue how they evolved into basically this, like, you know, dollar store shield. Unmasking Matt, Jen finds out that Eugene has kidnapped Luke Jacobson in order to make him a new suit, which explains the hot pursuit from the Devil of Hell's Kitchen. Matt and Jen then flirt and bicker about the best approach, with Matt boasting over his experience as a hero and wanting to do things the stealthy way, while Jen wants to just Hulk smash through Eugene's hideout, aka the lily pad. This whole scenario felt like something out of the old, like, Batman 60s show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got the goons, you've got the over-the-top, like, hideouts, and they just, uh -huh. like, a ridiculous motive for the villain. I loved every second of this. I thought it was just awesome. No, that's a great way to describe it. I, I didn't even think of it that way. It does feel exactly Yeah, I mean, this whole storyline feels like something straight out of this show. Like, you could totally see, like, uh -huh. you know, the Joker or the Riddler having, like, a seamstress like handcuffed to a table and like sewing like a batarang proof like suit for them. Uh -huh. But don't lie, Christian. I mean, you're you're pretty jealous that this guy had his own like custom arcade cabinet. Hell yeah, I want a custom <laughs> arcade cabinet. Like insert yourself into the game. What game uh -huh. would you insert yourself into, Christian? Maybe like Shovel Knight. It's a sure. good one. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought you'd go with like Mortal Kombat or something like that, but Okay. No, I don't want to like fall on a pit of spikes. Yeah, but you Damon. can also be, be the dude like who's like despining people. Come on now. I, I hear you, but everyone has a bad fate. <laughs> no combat. Yeah, I know how to play, Christian. Inside, we get a glorious abbreviated version of a hallway fight with Matt taking on goons. But before more guys can get to him, Jen smashes her way in, taking out the squad of goons in one blow. Man, there is nothing like watching Daredevil beat some ass in a hallway. <laughs> like, I could watch a whole episode of this. Uh-huh. <laughs> and hopefully you'll be able yes, to soon. I just love that they put this in here, though. Um, and uh, you know mm. what? I'm digging the yellow and the red. Like, I don't know how you felt about it, but I don't know. It works. I thought it would bother me more, but seeing it in action and seeing it with the way it plays with other colors, I thought it looked yeah, pretty I mean, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous in the comics so uh -huh. but here like the way it's kind of muted i don't know i dug it mm -hmm. forgot to mention earlier when they first show him uh saying i'm daredevil they actually played yes. the old theme so i wonder if they're gonna that keep was, it or that not that was a nice touch i don't know i don't know we'll, we'll have to wait and see the two of them then make their way to Eugene, who is quick to try and escape, ignoring both the dueling you know, legal aid that Matt and Jen are trying to give him, you know, so he doesn't cause any more damage to himself. Unfortunately, the new suit wasn't ready for him to just rip it and rib it, so when he jumps out the window, he of course just lands on hard concrete. Not gonna lie, I probably would get a rip it and rib it shirt <laughs> if they make one. <laughs> I don't blame you because I'm totally going to pick up his Marvel Legend figure when it comes oh, out. So I get it. With the fighting done, Jen and Matt get a moment to themselves, which only allows the sparks to fly as the two of them make the most of Matt's last night in town, which led to a pretty fun walk of shame as Daredevil leaves the next day. Nikki then arrives reminding us and Jen that the lawyer awards are tonight in which Jen breaks the fourth wall, acknowledging the obvious stinger twist before the finale trope that must be coming. Yeah, like I said before, I love this relationship. Um, I'm hoping that if there's a second season of She-Hulk, you know, we have another cameo appearance, you know, by Daredevil and they and this relationship can continue to grow. Also, I got to believe the gif of Matt doing the walk of shame is going to be all over like Twitter 
by tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I was happily surprised that the episode wasn't over because it feels like in previous episodes, like in the middle of the season, like this is where they would end it. I like that they went meta here and totally like foreshadowed you know, where the story was going. At what feels like a stage gala, Jen meets up with her colleagues and family who are all there to honor her for, you know, best female lawyer of the year. Though apparently she's not the only one winning this title as Mallory and several other women get called up to claim their trophy. I thought this entire scene was hilarious up to this point. Um, I loved Mallory's response <laughs> to all of it. Um, I was kind of surprised that Jen you know, was actually taking the award seriously. But that also might be part of her like passive nature, which is soon to about to change. Things go from strange to bad though, once Jen attempts to give her acceptance speech, as the screen behind her starts pouring out all the leaked info Intelligentsia took from her phone, along with a sex tape that Jen hulked out and stopped by destroying the LED display. Jen at moments here seems a little out of control in comparison to what we've seen of her while she's in her She-Hulk form. But before she can do any further damage, damage control arrives on the scene as our episode comes to a close. I thought this whole moment was really well done. Um, I like when she lost control. It really felt like a nod to Carrie almost the way she was like standing on the stage and the way they kind of framed it. Mm -hmm. uh, I almost wish she lost more control and went like total like Savage Hulk here. And I mean, who would blame her, honestly? Because like, why wasn't anyone fucking pulling the plug? what was going on and maybe maybe they were trying to or something but it was like well, someone at least help her but obviously it was done to have that like full circle moment and just kind of echo back to what like bruce was you know warning her about like i said i mean she rightfully so should have been smashing the shit out of those tv screens but it goes to show you just how terrified people are of these like superpower beings at the end of the day also i've got a question like why damage control was there right away i mean if you think about it too like a good portion of that room knows jen and they still mm -hmm. made a run for it you know even her her family so if you look at it like that it is a pretty heavy moment so do you think intelligentsia like clued damage control in on what was about to go down because they were sure there right away yeah almost instantaneously like i i felt like the entire event was staged like i thought they even set out the emails saying like you're yeah, invited, we talked about that you know? last week where we thought maybe mm -hmm. it was just a huge setup but i'm not sure just because it seems like jen's firm was involved but regardless i mean this was a pretty dark ending that i i didn't see coming at all but with that being said i thought this was like the most complete episode we've gotten yet um I mean, we had some real stakes, we had plot movements, we had some real nice action sequences. It just felt like the show living up to its full potential. Because I mean, even the humor spread throughout the episode really landed uh, very well, because I just felt like there was enough in between each joke as well, mm -hmm. you know, rather than it's just constant. No. With a lot of these last and few that's episodes. Not to say that I didn't enjoy what we got the last couple episodes, but I thought this was just like the perfect balance of everything I want out of this show. Mm-hmm. It's what I expected this show yes. to be. You yes. Know? I like obviously I knew it was gonna be a comedy. I was just expecting more like punching and smashing. Which can still be funny. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at Deadpool. So when it comes to like intelligentsia, 
I feel like it's not going to be as big of a reveal as we want it to be. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I could see it being kind of like, you know, just this, like, Reddit subgroup gone awry with, you know, maybe a, a supervillain like the leader, you know, pulling the strings, you know, in the shadows. Um, but, like, I don't see, like, the full, like, comic book version of Intelligentsia, you know, at work here. No, yeah. If anything, it's just one guy, you know, can, like you said, like the leader just in control. Yeah, everyone and, the, and, that's on and that maybe site. they don't even know it. Like, I won't be surprised if it's like it's just Todd and then we find out Todd's been answering to like yeah, the leader or, or maybe like the leader's just been manipulating him. Um, uh-huh. Because Todd has like super villain lackey written all over him. Uh-huh. I almost thought he was one of the guys putting masks on at the end there, but, you know, there was no... A clear <laughs> shot of it. As long as we get a seed with She-Hulk actually punching Todd uh-huh. at some point next episode, <laughs> I'll be satisfied. <laughs> By the way, that does it for now. I'll make sure to join us next week for the finale of She-Hulk. All right, Christian, it's time to break down episode five of Andor. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for Star Wars Andor ahead. You have been warned. I knew you were lying. I knew it. Sky Kyber. He's been hiding it. I warned you. He comes in with nothing but the clothes on his back and a stone worth 30,000 credits. I've topped out on Questionsville. I have reached my limit. Who brings a treasure to a robbery? We don't have time for this. You know exactly who I am. And you know I'll kill you for it. Okay. Huh? It's your call. Let's not go too far, Clem. Before we get into the hustle and bustle of Cassian's life, we take a moment to visit Karn, whose life has been flipped upside down after failing to apprehend Cassian Andor. In this episode, we get a couple of moments with him dealing with his overbearing and cruel mother, who simply you know, looks at him as a failure for losing his job. In an effort to change his employment status, his mother, Edie, um, sets up a phone call with, with Cyril's uncle, Harlow, who I've never heard of, but, but seems to be well connected in the world of Elise Coruscant. Well, I mean, this explains why the dude's such a prick, right? I mean, with a mom like this, I mean, he never really had a chance. <laughs> I guess uh, that. Also, am I the only one thrown off by the fact that, like, there's cereal in uh, the Star Wars galaxy? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a weird choice for him to be eating just cereal. Yeah, like, it casually. totally looks like, you know, uh, Fruity Pebbles or something like that. I was like, okay, that's weird. Um, so what do you think this call to his uncle will lead to? Like, do you think it's going to end up getting Karn back in a position where he can hunt down Cassian? Like, maybe a job with, like, the Empire? I think so. I feel like it's going to be an Imperial job, but I'm not 100%. Like, I feel like he could end up working for, um, Dedra Miro, but... Like, he could end up being one of the security officers or something uh, like that. Maybe his uncle's a senator. Um, who could pull some strings. It, yeah. it, it feels like that would track. Because from what we see later on, where he's kind of like sulking in his bedroom, he's still pretty hyper-focused on Cassian. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he probably blames him for his failures. But once again, he really should be pointing the finger at his mom because she was just awful. I will say, I still don't have sympathy <laughs> for the character. <laughs> 
on Aldani, Andor awakes to find his you know, items missing, all besides his kyber crystal that he has hidden on him. Across the way, he finds Arvel Skeen, who has gone through his entire bag. Skeen claims Vel had him snoop, but it's pretty clear out of everyone, Skeen seems to distrust you know, Cassian the most. Skeen also notices that Andor immediately looked down at his prison tattoos, recognizing that Andor had also spent some time locked up, as we learned in last week's episode. Both these characters have a great dynamic together. Mm. Um, Scheme obviously can tell that there's something up with Cassian, you know, because they have similar backgrounds. So I feel like he's kind of like sniffing him out here, um, which is leading to, you know, all the mistrust. While on the surface there seems to be a kinship growing between Skeen and Cassian, Skeen continues to pry at Cassian's motives, you know, for being a part of this cause, especially after Nemec breaks down the Empire's oppression over the galaxy for everyone to hear. Cassian again is a bit vague, claiming he simply knows who his enemy is. I thought this whole episode did a great job of really like fleshing out all these like new supporting characters. Uh, and giving them backstories so we actually, like, care about them at the end of the day. I think it's cool that we haven't seen any characters like Nemec in, like, Star Wars yet that really have, like, pushed their beliefs and ideas of what it means to be a part of the Rebellion. Like, we're getting a better grasp of, like, why these people are against, you know, the Empire than what we've seen in the past, where it's just like, he killed my brother, you know? It's like there's a little bit more to it. Yes, I mean, he gave a deeper philosophical reason for opposing the Empire, mm. you know, as a concept. I, I would argue that you kind of get that from Saw Gerrera's, you know, character. But I know what you mean. I mean, they're they're few and far between, honestly. So in a meeting with Vel and Taramin before they start practicing out their plans, it's clear to Cassian that, you know, the crew is in a bit over their heads as they don't even know how to get the cargo ship off its rails at the Imperial base. He also goes on to correct their plan by, you know, paying attention to even the smallest of details, like who is left or right handed for better positioning in the group as they move through the base, which, you know, all but reaffirms that Cassian will be incredibly vital to their plan. Well, we now know why Luthen wanted Cassian on this mission. Yes. <laughs> and thank God he found him because these guys would be screwed. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, for, for a group that's been planning for so long, it still feels like they're kind of like flying by the seat of their pants. Mm -hmm. uh, Especially for having a guy on the inside that can like actually go into these ships and compartments and look at this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I can't argue that. But maybe it's a case of him not wanting to be like too suspicious. Um, I don't know. But you would think that he would. Like, I mean, that's a big detail that you you probably uh. should figure out before you, <laughs> you know, initiate this mission. I also love that Andor like freaks out every time he sees something wrong like it's not like like a little like he's not trying to play nice with them at all he just immediately attacks them every single time yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean because he he's at first he's so dumbfounded that he he actually thinks that they're trying to test him and then he's terrified when he finds out that's not the case uh -huh. <laughs> i still feel like at some point when they're on this mission there's going to be a moment where he has to decide whether or not to like bail on them or, you know, like stay and fight the good fight. While Cassian and crew practice Imperial formations, we get a good look at the Imperial side of as this episode cuts back and forth with Gorn, you know, doing his duties as the, you know, lieutenant at this base, forced to strict 
Forced to be strict under the eyes of the Empire, Gorm pretends to threaten to take away his men's privilege to watch this like once in a lifetime event with the meteor shower and all that, especially if they do not complete their tasks. But this scene really showed us how distracted the Empire will be during the heist as they show a ton of eagerness to watch the you know star display. On top of that, Andor questions why Gorn is against the Empire. Having raised the ranks to become a lieutenant, why turn now? We learn from Vel that Gorn had fallen in love with a woman from Aldani, but unfortunately it seems the Empire was responsible for her death, and that was a big catalyst for why he turned. His love for Aldani can also be noticed when Gorn grimaces listening to one of his men speak on how the Empire will be turning most of the planet into a port, and how the Imperials feel about Aldani people in general. Once again, I just appreciate getting this like deeper knowledge of each one of these characters and their motives. It just, it's going to add a whole lot more to the mission when it does actually take place. Yeah, but learning more about him gave me real death flags. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if Cassian's the only one who walks up alive, honestly, so. That would be unfortunate. At least one or two, right? right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it foreshadows Rogue One, so. We also return to Coruscant this episode to see what Dedra Miro has been up to. And, you know, while it seems like she was ready to give up her search on Rebel activity, especially after the Major really discouraged her efforts, her colleague with her um, going through all of these notes reinvigorates that funny feeling that she has about all of this as it just seems all too random to be random, as they say. So the two of them hunker down to find if there was any more coincidences out there in the galaxy. Now she's getting really close to sniffing out Luthen and Kuru. Uh -huh. My guess is she's gonna somehow get in contact with Karn, and that's how she's gonna put all the pieces together. Karn has technically seen Luthen's face. Yes. So that's mm, yes possibility. I mean, without the wig, but yes. Mm. <laughs> Mon Mothma this week is also dealing with more problems at home as it seems her time, you know, living a double life as a senator and, you know, rebel sympathizer may be affecting her relationships with her husband and daughter as they both show resentment towards her. I'm assuming she will play a bigger role in next week's episode as we only saw her kind of approach the dinner that was mentioned in the week prior. Yeah, because I think the dinner was actually supposed to be at their house. So that why she, that's why she was so taken aback by it. That's because, right. You know, the, the husband didn't let her know it was even happening. So um, but anyway, I mean, there was a lot of tension, obviously, like you said here. Um, they're not really a functional family unit at this point, it feels like, uh, you know, it, after that dig that her daughter took at her, like, I wonder if her daughter would have a different like perspective on Mon Mothma. Like if she actually knew like what she was doing behind the scenes. I'm not sure because I, I don't know how like, you know, where her father and the daughter like align, you know, with the Empire. Well, I feel like the dad is definitely on the other side of the fence. And I think that's where that tension, you know, comes from. To me, at least, and I might be misinterpreting this. It kind of sounded like she felt like all the charity work that her mom does is just for show. Or maybe she's just a teenager being a teenager. <laughs> Who knows? Most likely. Maybe somewhere down the line, she'll end up like joining the mods or getting hooked on death sticks. Who knows? Uh, as long as that happens off screen, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Nope, I want a six-part series, Christian. Now that's a Disney-like special I could see happening. 
it'd be like a Disney after school special. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, like I could see it being like the dad or even the daughter who are the ones who like turn um, on Mothma in uh, once they kind of find out what she's doing. And maybe that's what forces the rebels out of the shadows. With it being the last night before their plan is set in motion, the tension is really only growing as Cassian and crew approach the Imperial base. While setting up a small camp on the hillside, Skeen cuts off the necklace Cassian was using to hide the kyber crystal from the group. This almost leads to a shootout between Cassian and Skeen, but the situation gets diffused by Cassian when he finally decides to be honest, at least to a degree, by saying that he's only there for the money. And while this does disappoint a few of them who didn't know, Cassian also makes sure to make it clear to the group that he will just leave if no one wants them there. But as we already know, they pretty much need him for this job to be successful. I thought this was smart of Cassian to be up front and like put all his cards on the table. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoyed the bit about, I really enjoyed the line about not wanting to be the reason the team starts to self-destruct um, before the mission and how yes. he, you know, he would just be the excuse to do so. Um, I, in the long term, I felt like it almost kind of rallied to the group. Like if he was using it for deflection, it was great. But at the same time, yeah, he was definitely, it definitely got into all their heads. Like you, you're either in this or not. Don't blame me. <laughs> um, yeah, because just that line alone lets you know how experienced Cassian is at this. Um, this is definitely not his first rodeo. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure he's seen like plenty of heists like implode. As the crew signals that they're in position to Gorn using a flare, Skeen regals us of a tale of how his brother killed himself after the Empire ruined his livelihood, which Cassian does allow to be an apology before they all have to work together in next week's heist episode. The episode then closes with Luthen stressed, waiting to hear anything about the Aldani mission through an encrypted radio. It seems that there's a lot of added pressure on the success of this mission as now as now not only does Vel have ties back to Luthen, but so does Andor, according to Luthen at least. I thought it was a nice touch seeing Luthen in doubt and so nervous. Mm -hmm. um, it just raised the stakes even more. Um, it, it makes him feel like a three-dimensional character, you know, that he's not just so sure of himself and the mission and, and, the, and the cause even. But like I said before, I thought this episode did a great job of giving a lot of these characters more depth. Uh, I know some people are complaining about it being too much exposition almost, but I disagree. Like, just because the characters are conveying information that move the plot along, that's not inherently a bad thing as long as it's done in an entertaining fashion that actually like enriches the story and makes you care. That's just solid storytelling. They've now really set the table for this big mission and they've added a lot of weight to it. And at this point, like I feel a lot more invested in what's about to go down. Because before this episode, I thought this was just gonna be a detour to get us from like point A to point B. Um, now, do I want like a full season of episodes like this? Uh, of course not. But I thought this was a great way to really like prime people for what's to come. I mean, for me, it made it feel like this next episode is going to be massive. Like there's going to be so yes. much going on because they built to it. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, it does that mean that I could be disappointed if it's, you know, very small, like they just go in and get out and there's no issues. <laughs> yeah, but. 
well, that would be really anticlimactic. <laughs> and unlike it all goes any, off without any a Star hitch, Wars yeah. like heist ever. Uh -huh. Although when it comes to security, we've seen like in the past, the Empire is not necessarily the brightest. I mean, we did watch Obi-Wan almost sneak Leia out underneath his robe. <laughs> during his series so around a bunch of force sensitive beings as well uh, uh. i mean fucking darth vader was <laughs> on base with him <laughs> and he almost got away with it but whatever whatever all i'm saying is that i don't mind this form of like this way of storytelling as long as they pay it off no. as long as the payoff is good you know uh, i agree i'm just happy that this series has enough episodes to really like tell a full story because mm -hmm. this is obviously not very rushed no <laughs> can't say that at all but part of me finds that refreshing but with that being said make sure to join us next week as we break down episode six of andor warning spoiler alert major spoilers for house of the dragon ahead you have been warned I done, but what was expected of me? Forever upholding the kingdom, the family, the law. Will you flout it all to do as you please? Alicent, let her go! Where is duty? Where is sacrifice? It's trampled under your pretty foot again. Release the blade, Alicent. And now you take my son's eye, and to even that you feel entitled. Exhausting, wasn't it? Hiding beneath the cloak of your own righteousness. This week on Game of Thrones, you could cut the tension with a knife as all our parties join together for the funeral of Lena Valerian. I could imagine this opening sequence maybe being hit or miss for some people as it is just mostly, you know, people staring at one another, but the way you can feel the awkwardness of all their conflicts and yet this yearning for civility was extremely entertaining to watch. There was just so much bad blood in one area as they all try to circumnavigate their issues in order to honor the passing of poor Lena. Unfortunately, civility can only last so long as we see later on in this episode but before that, the episode lays seeds for Rhaenyra and Daemon to reunite, and because of the pace of this series, their relationship bears fruit by its end. Again, totally not the direction I thought we were going, but now there is a firm line sitting between Rhaenyra and Alicent. But I could still see Daemon getting a twist on you know, the Jon Snow storyline and becoming the ultimate undoing of Rhaenyra. After all, he doesn't have the best track record record as far as wives go. Last week I did talk about how the kids were kind of my least favorite element added to this show, but I felt they definitely delivered more with Viserys' youngest son being the catalyst of what transpires in the second half of this episode. Prince Aemond really turns the tides when his jealousy of not being bonded with a dragon yet sends him to attempt to take the late Lady Lena's dragon, which while watching I kept expecting the poor kid to get himself killed. Killed. But luckily for him, he did get to enjoy his first dragon ride, but at the cost of taking the dragon away from Lena's family, as it is now bonded with Aemon. This, of course, upset Damon's kids, who brought along Prince Jace 
to confront whoever was actually riding the dragon. A brutal brawl between the children ensues, which again amazed me that no one actually died here. But in self-defense, Jace did actually end up cutting through Aemon's eye, rendering it useless. After breaking up the fight, the parents finally got involved, and Alicent fucking loses it while Viserys seems to cater more towards Rhaenyra and her son's tale of all the events. Alicent, you know, however, wants justice and demands a literal eye for an eye, and tries to actually sick Sir Criston on Prince Jace. In this scene, everything really just comes to a boil, as when Alicent is denied her, you know, request, she literally tries to take the eye herself, in which Rhaenyra just stone cold blocks the assault, and without any fear in her eyes whatsoever, pretty much exposes Alicent's darker side. But really, I think this moment was all more of an awakening for Alicent, as she, for the first time, bears her fangs in this fight. I also like that everyone you know goes against Viserys here and pretty much says yes those aren't actually you know the sons of a Valerian when it comes to Rhaenyra it's I mean it's pretty asinine to think otherwise but Viserys still stands by and stands true to his own kind. Otto Hightower, who is once more Hand, is more than proud to see that his daughter is, is capable of fighting Rhaenyra, as we're now seeing more of the treacherous side of Otto Hightower and his daughter. Larry Strong's aid will definitely come into play for the Hightower family as we move on. Lenor, who wasn't there for any of this conflict after becoming, you know, so distraught with his sister's death, attempts to vow that he will be there to be a better father for the kids and, you know, husband for Rhaenyra. But Rhaenyra comes up with a different plan altogether, wanting to unite her family in the ways of Aegon the Conqueror, as she devises a plan with Daemon to fake Lenor's death so that he can go, you know, live in the Western Islands with his lover. All the while, Rhaenyra and Daemon then can get married and prepare themselves for the battle with the high towers like i said i still don't trust damon whatsoever to just be you know satisfied with being a king consort rather than the actual true ruler of westeros and i imagine he will turn on her in the end even if he does truly love her as we've seen that conflict within him several times throughout this show but for now we will wait and see what happens and i'll talk more house of the dragon next week with episode eight and now a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. Hey you, got bush? Well, you definitely do if you haven't tried the best products from our sponsor today, Manscaped. Taking control of your bush is important. These products are so good, you're going to be showing pride in your new bush-free yard. It's a fact that you'll have the best-kept nutsack on the cul-de-sac, so save big and be the most hygienic version of yourself by using our discount code 20NerdShow for 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. Listeners, you know I don't got bush because Manscaped helps keep my rocket raccoon high oh, and tight. Yeah. Whether you're looking to go bald like an eagle or just in need of a safe trim, Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game. Listeners, the grooming package I highly recommend is the Performance Package 4.0. That's because inside the package is the Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer is a bush's worst nightmare. This trimmer is designed to reduce grooming accidents and shave hair on loose skin 
thanks to its ceramic blades and advanced skin safe technology. No need for night vision goggles, this trimmer has a LED light to allow you to mow the lawn in the dark. It's basic landscaping. When you trim the hedges, the tree stands taller. The second best tool in the performance package is the Weed Whacker. This fine-tuned nose and ear hair trimmer will make sure your nasty nose pubes are under control. Instantly add some pep to your step with the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Spray-On Testy Toner. With a performance package purchase, you get two free gifts, a shed travel bag and the patterned high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxers. They have a bunch of other products on their website to help you maximize your confidence and grooming game. So listeners get 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. Kate Bush may be trending at the moment, but your bush needs some help. That's right, so make sure you're running up that hill and get 20% off and free shipping at Manscaped.com by using our code 20NerdShow. It's time to level up your grooming game with the ultimate bushwhacking tools from Manscaped. Well, all right, it's time to get into this week's Horror Month countdown. This time we're talking our personal top five horror films of the 1980s. Damon, what made the 80s such an iconic era for horror fans? Well, to plagiarize one of the decade's greatest artists, Molly Crew, the 80s was a decade of decadence. We as a society basked in overindulgence. Materialism and yuppies were on the rise and style over substance was the order of the day. Clothes got brighter, music and cars got faster, and horror got a whole lot bloodier. Slasher films swept the nation as horror entered a boom period, and movie studios raced to milk their new deranged cash cow. Audiences were treated to new terrifying sights once never imagined possible, with practical effects taking things to the next level. And with the genre coming down with a bad case of sucolitis, the knife-wielding maniacs who populated these films became household names, and the special effects wizards who brought them to life became rock stars to horror fans worldwide. But sadly, this period was never meant to last, as the MPAA started to bend its knee to angry parent and religious groups, leaving some of our favorite movie monsters toothless, and consequently movie studios searching for the next fad to capitalize on. Fortunately for us, though, that wasn't before the decade could deliver us some of the most enduring horror icons of films since the classic Universal monsters dominated the silver screen. Alright, so before we get started, some honorable mentions. Uh, now, this was the decade that I grew up in and really fell in love with horror, so it was really difficult to whittle things down to just a top five. Uh, but anyway, Audible mentions uh, Hellraiser, An American Werewolf in London, Friday 13th Part 6, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Halloween 2 and 4, I told you there was a lot of sequels, um, and Evil Dead 2. God, I love the 80s. Uh, Christian, any honorable mentions, man? I'm not going to list off 100 sequels because, yes, the 80s are filled with sequels, as Damon just, you know, clearly showed. But for my honorable mentions, I'll say Christine, um, Scanners, Predator, and Aliens. Oh, also Beetlejuice and Lost Boys, of course. And now for the amazing nerd show's top five horror films of the 1980s. Starting with Damon's number five, The Evil Dead. It's a seven. Queen of Spades. Four of Hearts. Eight of Spades. Two of Spades. Jack of Diamonds. Jack of Clubs. Why have you disturbed our sleep? Awaken. 
awakened us from our ancient slumber. <laughs> you will die! So, while I love Evil Dead 2, it's the original that scarred me as a child, which of course makes it my favorite. And that's because Sam Raimi's debut feature film is simply unapologetic. It doesn't let us off the hook with sight gags and slapstick like the sequel does. Raimi's film is simply relentless, putting the great Bruce Campbell through the ringer. I mean, once Cheryl starts to levitate during the iconic card scene, you're not allowed to come up for air until the film ends. Innovative and a template for all Cabin in the Wood films to come, Evil Dead is a blood-soaked fever dream that announced the arrival of one of the genre's most influential artists for years to come. Christian's number five, Child's Play. I said talk to me, damn it, or else I'm gonna throw you in the fire! You stupid bitch, you filthy slut! Did you fuck with me? One of the first real horror villains I can recall getting into was none other than the killer doll Chucky. And while the absurdity of the murderer turned doll was what hooked me to the numerous sequels, growing up I realized none of them really were quite as good as the original that had more suspense towards the true nature of this you know, monstrous plastic being which overall made it a much more frightening concept in comparison to the kill fest that the rest of the films you know, turned out to be. So Child's Play, the original, like many 80s horror films, was the birth of an icon, which you definitely should have seen by now. Damon's number four, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Hey Ted, where's, where's that, uh, that corkscrew, that fancy corkscrew for the wine bottle? Ted? So in my mind, the final chapter is the high point of the franchise, with just a perfect storm of elements helping make it not only the best Friday the 13th, but one of the best slasher films ever made. I mean, you got a script with characters you actually care about, so when they meet their demise, it actually matters. Uh, you got great stand-up performances by Crispin Glover and a young Corey Feldman, and don't forget Ted White as Jason, who added a real sense of physicality and menace to the role. And then to top things off, you have the return of Tom Savini, working his magic to make every death memorable. Hell, I mean, it doesn't even matter that the title's a bold-faced lie and we would go on to have eight more fucking sequels. I mean, that's all kind of part of its charm, honestly. So anyway, listen, at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is if someone wants to experience Friday the 13th or slasher films for that matter for the first time, it would have to be the final chapter that I point them to. Christian's number four, Friday the 13th part six, Jason no lives. No you gotta listen to me. Jason's coming here, he's after me. I'm trying to destroy him, but I'm fucked up. You got that right, punk. You listen to me. I'm sorry about what happened to you and your folks years ago, but no one in Forest Green wants to be reminded of what that maniac did here. That's why we changed the name. People want to forget this was Crystal Lake. And they don't need some kid stirring up Jason shit again. Now you just lie down and get some rest. In the morning, I'll call that clinic. Now look, if you just go to the cemetery, you'll see I'm not lying. Either you get some sleep, or I'm gonna come in there and put you out. You're gonna be sorry you didn't listen to me. 
You're gonna be sorry if you don't shut up. While I agree with Damon that the final chapter is a must watch and definitely almost made my list, it would be part six that left me, you know, with the most memorable Jason Voorhees experience. Cause that's exactly what it is. Director Tom McLaughlin and company, you know, deliver on what you came to see in this slasher flick. And that's Jason just absolutely fucking up his victims. And while you won't, you know, ever find yourself caring about, you know, the characters too much, you will find yourself having a ton of fun watching them get torn apart. This film is not at all like the serious haunts that some on my list later on will be, but this is just one that you put on with your friends and enjoy the murder fest that is Jason Voorhees. Damon's number three, The Thing. This is pure nonsense. Doesn't prove a thing. I thought you'd feel that way, Gary. You were the only one that could have got to that blood. We'll do you last. <laughs> So John Carpenter's The Thing is a masterclass in suspense and tension. What he manages to deliver with this remake of the 1950s thriller is the physical manifestation of our own paranoia, all of course in the form of the most terrifying creature effects ever captured on film. I mean, the first time I watched this movie was through my fingers because I just wasn't prepared for what I was witnessing and damn it, Rob Bodden's effects still hold up decades later. But what also makes this film a true classic is the nightmare scenario of being trapped in this icy prison of isolation with a monster that's wearing a friendly face. The film taps into a nerve and feeling we can all relate to in a way because we've all suffered that anxiety of mistrust. And it's really that vibe and feeling that stays with us for the course of the entire film till one of the bleakest endings in cinema history. Christian's number three, Nightmare on Elm Street. always be a bigger Jason fan than Freddy, I can't deny the ingenuity of this film and how it became an absolute staple that remains to this day. Wes Craven's Freddy attacks you in your dreams, which opened up a franchise with limitless potential, and at its center was a bona fide star in Robert England, who carried an iconic performance for years to come. And Heather Lagenkamp um, definitely gave Jamie Lee Curtis a run for her money by becoming one of the most badass final girls in horror history. Damon's number two, The Shining. Come and play with us, Danny. Forever. And ever. And ever. Unlike other horror films from the decade, The Shining isn't about jump scares, gore, or a body count. 
which might be one of the reasons I always think of it as a 70s film, even though it was released in early 1980. Um, the Shining is more about atmosphere and suspense. From Kubrick's brilliant camera work to the haunting score and Nicholson's manic performance, as an audience member, you really feel like you're trapped inside Jack Torrance's mind as he loses grip on reality. And I think that's partially due to Kubrick's attention to detail and his gorgeous filmmaking style. I mean, it's hard not to feel like you're being immersed by this film. The Overlook is so visually stunning that it seeps into your pores and just infects you the same way it does the Torrances. And that's what I think makes The Shining so unnerving, yet strangely rewatchable. It feels like a true haunted house experience just from the comfort of your own couch. Christian's number two, The Thing. Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. I enjoy the thing for a lot of the same reasons that I fell in love with Alien. Damon said it best that this film is a masterclass in telling a story about mistrust and having a setting that leaves you in just, you know, this isolated place. Which somehow the cold of this blizzard environment made it even more claustrophobic at times than what I felt while watching, you know, Ripley go through the Nostromo. But ultimately what makes this much, you know, more terrifying is the body horror elements and the fact that the enemy is simply one of us. And dare I say this is definitely my favorite performance from Kurt Russell. So I highly recommend The Thing. And now for Damon's number one 80s horror film, A Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> So I don't think another film affected me as a kid the way Nightmare on Elm Street did when I first saw it in my friend's basement unbeknownst to my parents. I was a pretty logical 10-year-old at the time, so I always found that loophole after watching a horror film to kind of explain why I shouldn't be scared. Like, I took solace in knowing that most slashers of the day seem to only go after horny teenagers. But just knowing that Freddy, before he became a nightmare demon, was actually a child killer took that rationality away. Then you factor in that sleep wasn't even a safe haven, something that I used to pray for trembling in my bed after one of these all-might horror marathons. Well, needless to say, I had a lot of sleepless nights after watching this movie. Wes Craven gave us one of the most creative, iconic movie monsters of all time with Freddy Krueger. Most slasher films were filled with hulking mass mutes stalking their victims. Not Freddy, though. No, he had personality and style and was quick with the one-liner. I mean, really, if you think about it, Freddy is as vile as it gets. He uses your greatest fears against you, all the while taunting you, and then he murders you in your sleep. It just doesn't get worse than that. What Craven crafted with Nightmare on Elm Street is a surreal experience to say the least. I mean, you're dealing with an unreliable narrator in the form of these sleep-deprived kids. So after Wes establishes these rules or lack of, you never really feel safe until the movie ends. If you think about it, the entire runtime of this film is filled with now legendary horror scenes, all because of the idea of Freddy operating on this nightmare scape that serves as this dark, twisted playground to torment his victims with. 
It's a stroke of genius that opens up so many possibilities. I mean, there's just no denying in my mind that Nightmare on Elm Street is a true hallmark moment for horror. Freddy Mania was a real thing in the 80s. He had merch on the shelves, which was just unheard of for a horror film at the time. I mean, he also had his own hotline and TV show for crying out loud. It just doesn't get bigger than that. But with that being said, even though Nightmare and its subsequent sequels feel like a time capsule for the decade in many ways, I still think the film is truly timeless, especially if you look at the legion of fans it makes when every new generation discovers it for the first time. And that's why Nightmare on Elm Street is my favorite horror film of the 80s. And now for Christian's number 180s horror flick, The Shining. To simply put it, The Shining is absolutely iconic. From even the quietest moments to Jack Nicholson's screams of insanity as he hunts down his family, you won't forget a moment of this film. Never has a carpet pattern been so terrifying, but thanks to Kubrick's well-captured Overlook Hotel with some of the best cinematography in horror, even the smallest details of this film can send shivers down your spine. And it's all, of course, amplified by the performances from this very limited cast of characters who portray the absolute dread of their situation as whatever force in this hotel has clearly chipped away at the sanity of Jack Torrance. It's definitely a film that surpasses just being a top horror film in my eyes. You know, with us both putting it on our lists, this is your call to watch The Shining this horror month. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Make sure to join us next week as we continue horror month by counting down our favorite horror films of the 90s. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. With Cyberpunk 2077 back in the limelight after the release of the anime Cyberpunk Edgerunners on Netflix, developers CD Projekt Red have announced a sequel is in the works. Along with that, three new Witcher titles were also announced to be on their way all utilizing Unreal Engine 5. While I'm not surprised by there being more Witcher games coming, things were definitely seeming pretty bleak on the prospects of Cyberpunk 27 becoming an actual franchise. The anime, however, you know, has brought much needed attention to the title that has actually fixed a lot of their, you know, earlier issues um, since launch. However, the game still isn't exactly what was promised, and while I'm happy with the base of the game, I'd still be a little hesitant walking into a sequel. Cyberpunk's gameplay at the moment is at a good place, but what I'd want in a sequel is more based on the story. One of the things that excited me most about the first game's marketing was its concepts of, you know, choice, and how much it would actually affect your overall story. Hell, if they had just given us anything close to the story-changing moments and rewards given in The Witcher 3, I would have been you know, pretty satisfied, but alas, the three life paths you know, didn't really factor in as much as they were advertised, and no updates seemed to be adding you know, any of that in. So for me, I'd like them to focus more on the branching story element of the game, and making player choice you know, severely alter your experience. After all, that was one of their big selling points that they just never delivered on. Right now, more Cyberpunk is on the way with a current um, expansion in the works, in the form of a 
espionage spy thriller, which seems to be a very different experience from what we've gotten with V so far. So I am interested in that. Uh, Cyberpunk 2077 Phantom Liberty is set to be coming out next year. On the Witcher side of their announcements was three new titles, with one being a multiplayer experience. Their project codenames are going to be Polaris, Canis Majoris, and Cyrus. Um, from the way that they've you know described it, it sounds like Polaris will be the next full installment, aka Witcher 4, that the other two will be kind of built off of. Canis Majoris will apparently be um, you know a project headlined by another studio outside of CD Projekt Red, with uh, some former uh, people that have worked on Witcher also assisting. And then Cyrus will be a single player and multiplayer experience. They claim that these three games are set to come out within the next six years, which could hopefully mean that we get a Witcher game every two years going forward, but who knows what kind of experience they may be. I mean, for all I know, Cyrus could be just a Gwent tournament game. Either way, Witcher 4 must also be deep in development at this point for them to be at least claiming it could come out within the next six years and i'm highly looking forward to it lastly i do want to say streaming wise things should be getting back on track this weekend as i've just had a lot of things drop down on me these past couple of weeks that have prevented me from keeping my normal schedule so i do want to apologize about that but horror month is raging on on the stream side of things as well so we will be continuing games like alien isolation and starting the quarry this monday on top of that next week i will be trying out scorn on game pass as well as finishing up playthroughs in horizon zero dawn and metal hellsinger so you know a lot is still going on with the channel on twitch so make sure to check us out live every saturday through tuesday for now let's move on to wrestling You're a sweet kid. Like a lot of kids around here, you see. Mouth gets you in trouble. I'm gonna let you off the hook just once. But this is your final warning. You got 13 days. You watch your damn mouth. Moxie put it down right there. I mean, Hangman wanted to go right now, but. All right, Christian, it's that time again. Let's jump into the latest episode of AEW's Dynamite. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, and holy shit, there's been a lot of drama, uh, to say the least, but in the name of keeping things moving, we'll save all of that till the very end. You know, because some of that drama obviously ties into how they booked that main event. <laughs> So, but let's go ahead and let's just jump right into things. Feet first. Uh, what was our first match, Christian? Uh, up first, we had MJF defeating Wheeler Yuta after Yuta challenged him to a match last week and attacked him. Uh, I thought this match was important because it really reestablished MJF as a true threat in the ring. I mean, the last time we saw him wrestle was over four months ago, and Honestly, before that, it's not like he was in the ring every week. <laughs> so, no. uh, but to no surprise uh, to anyone, really. I mean, this was an extremely well-worked match. You could tell these guys have worked a lot together. Yes. I mean, just tons of great exchanges. Um, Man, that fucking, like, pinning combination that they did. Um, I was feeling bad for the ref. 
<laughs> like I was sucking wind just watching it. Uh, but yeah, like it, usually, you know, sometimes that like, you know, when wrestlers try to do those combo deals and they're like going back and forth, back and forth, it kind of gets sloppy. But this was crisp and clean no. as can be. So, um, but yeah, no, I, that fucking powerbomb backbreaker that MJF has now what an amazing move but like i i'm terrified for the person taking it every time uh, but yeah no i mean mjf showed no signs of ring rust whatsoever during this match which is once again for someone who hasn't wrestled for four months is pretty goddamn impressive uh but yeah no i i, I thought this was a fantastic way to kick off the show no i mean of course it was clear that mjf was going to get the win here but Yuta looked fantastic in this as well. I mean, he really came off as a star in this match against him. Now, at the end of the match, we had an interesting development from MJF. It felt like they were teasing, like, a babyface turn for him. Yeah. With Yuta, like, getting in his face and trying to get him to, like, shake his hand. And it looked like it was about to actually happen until, you know, Stokely came out you know, and made MJF put on the ring. I was just like, where, where is this going? This, I mean, I don't know if they're trying to kind of like play off of how over MJF is right now with the crowd. It just, it felt like a weird choice for the character though, from everything that we've seen over the last couple weeks. Like I know, like he gets a huge response every time he's out there, but it just, it didn't feel like it made any sense. For MJF to like even be pondering, you know, shaking hands with Yuta. Yeah, I, I was just waiting for him to sucker punch him yeah. or something. And then Stokely comes out and I'm like, why is he so angry with yeah, Stokely? St- yeah, and Stokely's the one who kind of starts to talk sense to him. And then you have like Regal playing like the school principal uh-huh. <laughs> standing up. And I I love the fact that he pulled the nucks out of his pocket that Regal always has a pair of nucks on him at all. <laughs> times just the true villain uh, um, i thought that was great but yeah i don't know i i don't i don't know if this is a storyline i want to see them like go further with mgf having a crisis of like consciousness like i don't need that out of my top heel so unless it's something where they're like we can't keep this guy heel anymore and we feel like it, it's just better to turn him face but like I feel like that's a huge fucking mistake. <laughs> no, I want him to stay, you know, AEW's ultimate heel, at least for right now when he wins the title eventually. Yes. You know, I want yes. that to be his first run. But I mean, regardless, I didn't feel like it, that moment at the end took away anything from a fantastic match. And then they put together a, another great video package for, you know, Brian and, uh, uh, Garcia going up against Jericho and Sammy. Uh, it was like their whole journey up until this point, yes. pretty much. Yes, more of this. So, I mean, because even though, like, we're knowledgeable fans and, you know, we watch the product every week, these kind of promo packages still get me more hyped to see mm-hmm. the main event. So, I, I think these packages are important, but I've been preaching that for months now. So, but all right, uh, Darby Allen then defeated Jay Lethal on the show. Yeah, I felt like this match leaked over for from Rampage. Like, I didn't understand the point of it. And I know last week, with a brief little 
like video package exchange between Darby and Jay Lethal. They tried to give this like purpose for mm-hmm. happening, but it just didn't work for me. Um, it was still a strong match, though. I mean, it had no heat whatsoever going into it, but they were able to get the crowd uh, at the end of the at the end of the day. But man, like I was terrified halfway through, like when Lethal fell on his head. And then, like, Darby did the code red on him. Uh-huh. And, I mean, Darby didn't see what happened prior. So I, I don't think he had any idea that, you know, you know, Lethal was just dropped on his fucking head. <laughs> but thankfully, it seems like Lethal was okay. All in all, like, this match was harmless. Um, my biggest issue, though, was at the end, because they did basically two identical angles yeah. in a row. Like, it was basically the same thing with, like, Jay Lethal having this crisis of consciousness Uh and Darby getting in his face, just like just like Wheeler did to MGF five minutes earlier. (laughs) I mean, does no one in this company talk? Do they not have like they have agents for a reason? Uh They're supposed to be talking when like this like show is being put together. So you don't have issues like this. Like, that's the point. Like, it's one of the points of these agents. So, obviously, someone's not doing their job. Because um, it just felt super redundant. No, like, um, that's what I was saying after the match. I was like, that just felt like a mini version of what we got literally 10 minutes ago. Yes. Uh, it was insane. Like, the entire, like, even parts of the match felt very similar. Where they're doing the consistent exchanges back and forth of pinfalls and stuff like yes. that. Which isn't too, like out of the norm but it, it seemed really close to what I, we already yes, got i'm more forgiving of that kind of stuff because if it's supposed to be an actual athletic competition shit's mm. gonna happen but yes i agree 100 percent. like if it's a big highlight spot in your match and it's very similar to a giant highlighted spot in a previous match like right before your match then yeah you probably want to stay away from it um but yeah and then to have an angle shot directly after match that's so similar to what happened five minutes prior made no sense to me whatsoever like you don't even put this on the same card like you don't even book it for a month or two like you wait and let that first one play out and then maybe you go into this if you want to um because it it, like i said it, it feels redundant you know something i noticed throughout the entirety of the show it really felt like Ring of Honor was just being pushed incredibly heavily this week. Like it's it's something that's been prevalent in the shows previously, but this week in particular, it just felt like every thirty minutes needed to have that kind of you know reminder. Ring of Honor's around. We're here. We're pushing Ring of well, Honor now. Like especially with like these first two matches, I think Excalibur mentioned like the Code of Honor here with yes. them trying to shake hands. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if they're getting close to a deal of some sort. That, you know, they're putting like such focus on Ring of Honor right now, because once again, it's a Ring of Honor angle that ends up headlining your card. Yes, that's two weeks in a row now. I've said in the past, like, I can't wait for Ring of Honor to be a separate show. Um, I want my Ring of Honor and AEW completely apart from each other. And I don't want to see any kind of interaction whatsoever. Like once ROH does get their own you know streaming service or whatever they end up getting you know uh, deal wise but 
for right now, if it's all in the name of getting that deal done, I'm okay with it. As long as the main storyline that they have going on is entertaining. And honestly, I mean, the Ring of Honor World Championship angle is probably the best thing going on Dynamite right now. So, like, I'm okay with it. But if it was just kind of what we were getting, like, the previous couple months, where it was just, like, Ring of Honor matches for the sake of Ring of Honor matches, no, that's an issue. Mm-hmm. So, but, I mean, because if you do think about it, honestly, there were actually plenty of Ring of Honor title matches featured in the main events um, on those previous shows. But it did have such a heavy, like, big storyline attached to it. Yeah. Like, this is the first, like, major storyline going on for Ring of Honor. And it's a good one, luckily. Up next, we had a quick video package about the embassy with my prince, Nana, reintroducing us to the <laughs> Gates of Agony and Brian Cage, who will be in a match with Wardlow. There's nothing wrong with them doing a little leg work to reintroduce Brian Cage uh-huh. and, you know, this group, um, especially since it seems like they've got plans for them in the future. So it is what it is. Prince Nana feels very, like, 1988 to me. Um <laughs> <laughs> a little too corny, but, you know, I don't know him very well, so mm. I'm willing to give it time to see how it plays out. Yeah, I, I was just wondering if he was actually Ghanaian or not, or we're, you know, doing another situation like what we had in WWE recently. <laughs> I don't know if he's an authentic prince, but <laughs> I, I, we'll have to look into that. But speaking of Brian Cage versus Wardlow, we had Wardlow retaining his TNT championship. Two meaty men slapping me, Christian. I mean, that sounds wrong, <laughs> but <laughs> I just, I loved it, though. Um, but I also like the fact that they kind of swerved us, and that wasn't, like, the main focus of the match. That it really ended up being, like, these two, like, insane athletes really mm-hmm. showing off their agility instead. Like, I mean, I don't know. I thought this did a great job of showcasing Wardlow and hopefully getting him back on track. But at the same time, like, reintroducing Brian Cage. Because I'm not going to lie, like, I feel like this is the most entertaining, like, Brian Cage match I've seen his entire AEW run. So, and I'm just not a Brian Cage guy. Like, he's the kind of, like, creator wrestler that you would put together to piss off your friends, where you just Uh make him unstoppable and give him, like, all your favorite, like, wrestlers' movesets. (laughs) I mean, like, you know, just to, like, easily like tear through a tournament of your buddies um so he just i don't know he he's never clicked with me personally so um but this match was solid and i i kind of would love to see them revisit it eventually and i mean with the end of this match it feels like we're probably gonna get that somewhere down the line i mean tony felt like he was booking like his next roh pay-per-view here uh We had Joe and FTR coming out, making the save after, you know, they jumped Wardlow. Um, I know we had an announcement later on in the night that FTR would be facing off against Gates of Agony. Am I saying their name right? Yeah, Gates of Agony. Okay. Uh, When is that taking place, Christian? That's going to be at Battle of the Belt, so that's going to be this Friday. So that's going to be at, okay, so that's going to be this Friday. I mean, I could also see, like, Cage... Uh, going up against Joe and challenging him for the uh, TV title, the ROH TV title, that is. Um, And then, like, somewhere down the line, long-term booking-wise, maybe you have, like, Ward Joe go up against FTR. Because FTR is still carrying around those uh, ROH tag team belts. 
So I know a while back we talked about this last week, but we did have like the Blackpool uh, Combat Club come out and like stare down FTR too. So mm. who knows what route they're going to go into? And we don't even have an ROH pay per view announced yet. So but I feel like that announcement's going to come sooner than later. I mean, I think there'd be a fun possibility if Brian Cage were to win the TV title off of Joe, and then you could have like a double television champion, like champion champion match between Cage versus Wardlow again and see who comes out with both titles. Yeah, maybe I, I could see that happening. Um, I just I just really enjoyed this match. It was fun to watch. Um, mm. And I think it kind of took the audience by surprise because they really got on their feet for this one at the end. No, I mean, this definitely could have been just, uh, you know, your your run of the mill powerbomb fest between two guys. But no, they really came out to do all the stunts that they possibly could. Yeah, you're not going to get many matches in AEW where Wardlow is like the undersized competitor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was kind of cool to like showcase that side of his abilities. After this, we had a moment with Britt Baker backstage pretty much saying that Soraya won't be, you know, able to wrestle in AEW and then claiming that this is Britt's house. So I hated this. Um, It just felt <laughs> like, you know, Tony wanted to give Britt some time on the mic to give her some time uh-huh. on the mic. I thought this totally ruined something that could have been like a huge moment at the end of the women's match. Because obviously, like once Britt goes into this tirade, you know, Soraya is going to get physical and be competing exactly. in the ring again. So it's just like, OK, there's no reason to telegraph it this much. I mean, I could see WWE having it like an angle like that where you know Soraya really couldn't wrestle but they're still gonna mock her but I, I couldn't imagine you know them having Britt Baker come out and say that and then you know really having this woman with a three-year contract not be able to wrestle on your show like I said I don't know why I'm beating around the bush because I mean the match literally takes place right after this segment uh but it totally like steps on the moment of you know Soraya getting physical in the ring and you know basically trading blows with Britt um like the crowd popped for it but i think they saw it coming so it wasn't Uh as huge of a revelation as it could have been but as for the match itself um i mean it felt like cheat code time again where we're just throwing all the women out there to throw them out there but regardless i thought it was a good match um i felt like everyone got something out of being in this match and really got a chance to shine hater is so over right now I mean, they've got to pull the trigger on her. I, I'm hoping that she's the next like contender for Tony's belt. Um, you know, I hope, you know, they actually have her like, you know, win it because it feels like the crowd is sour on Tony because out of all the women in this match, I felt like Tony got the least response from the crowd. Um, and I feel like part of that is like this resentment for Tony, like, because she got the title instead of Hater. And that's unfortunate because Tony's been fantastic. So yeah. now I just kind of want Hater to go over at this point. Let her win that belt. You can go right into the program with her and Britt. And then people will start to actually appreciate Tony's storm. Um, you know, I don't think you necessarily have to turn her heel to do that. Um but yeah, I, I really feel like part of the issue is just the resentment that a lot of like the hardcore AEW fans have for her, you know, and I don't know, it's like, you know, they see Hater as a homegrown talent, 
um, compared to Tony. Uh, I'm not sure what the issue is, but it's a thing. It's a real thing. I mean, she did get like booed last week, if you think about it, you know, when Soraya mm-hmm. like mentioned her um, in her promo. So and like there was just such a lack of response for her in this match, which was ridiculous because everyone else was, you know, getting over in this match. Um, so it, it it it's so unwarranted. You know, it's a little frustrating, but things like this are bound to happen when you continually start like teasing moments, you know, like turns like this with hater and storylines, and then you don't follow through. Mm-hmm. For like six plus months. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. Um, and I feel like, I mean, she, haters just gotten over like organically. Um, capitalize on that. You know, I don't care if it's not in your plans. And I don't know if plans might have changed because it did feel like they're going down that road. But we've seen like Tony like pump the brakes before and do this whole like stop and start thing with plenty of other angles. Um, recently, I mean, I mean, you just have to look at like Julia Hart with the House of Black and how long mm, that took yeah. from when she got the mist sprayed in her face and then she was off camera for a long time. Then she'd come back and act weird and then she would disappear again. And then they teased her turning and then it had happened. And then finally, like three months too late, she turned. Um, I don't want this to be that kind of deal because it feels like the time is right now to just strap the rocket on Hater and go. You know, that's what a smart booker does. Go with the hot hand. If the issue really is Soraya versus Britt right now, I feel like they could put that on hold to have Jamie Hayter go and have her feud with Britt. Like you could do a whole angle where it's like, you know, Soraya is, you know, constantly getting in the way of Tony and their drama is causing issues. At the pay-per-view, all you have to do is you have Hayter be the number one contender Face uh-huh. off against Tony Storm. And then you also have Soraya versus Britt. You know, yes. <laughs> after Hater wins the title, which will be a huge moment and blow the fucking roof off the joint, then you have Britt get jealous and turn on Hater. I mean, it would literally be the um the evolution storyline when Triple H uh and Evolution turns on Randy Orton after winning the belt at SummerSlam. Uh-huh. Same thing. I mean, it worked. That's okay. Play the hits. It'll get over. You can have multiple women's storylines going on over different issues at once, Tony. Like, it's it's going to make the women's division more important. And long-term-wise, it's going to get the division over. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. That's what I would do. Also, back to the match, I do feel like Penelope and Willow have, like, hit a next gear of late um i like the fact that you've got willow actually challenging jade again i wish they would build it up a little more because i could see willow actually like being the one to unseat like jade for that like tbs title Mm -hmm. i think that would be a really cool storyline and because they're so different personality wise i feel like she would be the perfect foil for jade you know where i could see you could really like build an awesome like angle out of it yeah but it's just like because it's coming up so soon yeah you know i know she's not going to win and it's unfortunate because that'll be the third loss she's had to her yeah you know she'll be fine though i mean the crowd oh, yeah, yeah. the crowd's in tour and stuff I, I don't know mm-hmm. what her contract status is i don't know if she's just kind of like uh you know per, per appearance deal 
Um, because she's never gotten the uh, AEW like you know all elite graphic or anything like that. But I, I feel hmm. like they do need to sign her. Yeah, um, get, she's gonna be a star. Yes, absolutely. I agree, hundred percent. So, um, yeah, and Penelope, she definitely deserves some credit too. Like, uh, you know, her last handful of matches that I've seen her in, like, she's definitely like stood out. So, hopefully, there's some like plans for her in the near future, also, because apparently there aren't any for her husband. <laughs> <laughs> Poor fucking Kip. Wear that box for two years. It felt like, you know, all for nothing. Like <laughs> for one match. One match ridiculous. with ridiculous. Uh, oh my god, it went nowhere. Oh well, I mean, I can't do anything about it. But I was like, does he? Does he even need to come out with her? Uh-huh. <laughs> what did he stay out there with her? I didn't even see him for during the match. No, I don't think. Okay. I don't think so. At least maybe he just put the box on his head and went back into the crowd. <laughs> That's what I would do if I was him. <laughs> it's got to be so frustrating for him, though. Speaking of frustrating, we still see Private Party uh, getting told off by Roosh and Jose, the assistant, saying that they need to be there during the match and help out, do their part. It just doesn't make any sense. I, I, yeah, it was a weird segment. I don't know if it was just kind of like thrown together because of the entire like Andrade situation. Um, I don't know what they had planned, but it just felt like AEW trying to poke the bear, you know, doing like this kind of silly spoof of, you know, the whole like or deal with WWE, you know, contract tampering uh, <laughs> with their talent. So I don't know. It is what it is, but I don't know. It, like save it for Rampage. Uh, then we got the celebration of all celebrations. Um, it was National Scissoring Day. I, it's marked on my calendar, not yours. <laughs> I guess Google missed that one for me. I apologize. So I was worried because when you do things like this, like there's always the chance that you're going to like jump the shark with the fad. Right. And Mm -hmm. I do think last week it was kind of a mistake not to have the acclaim out there in front of the crowd. Um, especially after, you know, their big title win the week before. Mm -hmm. Um, but man, I mean, this got incredibly over with the crowd. Um, I thought it was really well done. Um, I'm wondering if they're doing this as a direct response to DX reuniting next week. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like you might be getting some like scissor me daddy chance from that uh. WWE crowd during the, you know, reunion since, you know, daddy ass isn't there. But I thought this segment was really well written and like designed to have some like huge pops throughout it. And it, it all like paid off. It all worked. Um, like the crowd was hook, line, and sinker. It was smart to have Swerve interrupt at the end, though. Um, it definitely feels like they're headed towards, you know, a rubber match uh, between, you know, Swerve to our glory and uh, the acclaimed, which I'm totally fine with. Um, maybe we had too many moving parts with Sterling also interrupting. Um, you know, Sterling and Swerve have this like ongoing feud. Um, I'm wondering if we don't eventually have Sterling, like, you know, start to represent Swerve, though, since it seems like Swerve is uh-huh. going to be like a full heel. But also they might have had Sterling interrupt just so they could, you know, get that scissor spot over at oh, the yeah. end, too. So. And that's what I was thinking. I was like, someone had to get beat up during the sequence. It wasn't going to be Swerve. Yeah, so. I mean, they, they did it on <laughs> I believe they did that spot on Rampage also. But, you know, it is what it is. It seems like their version of like the 2022 uh, what's up 
you know, um, spot that the Dudley boys used to do. Mm-hmm. But man, Billy Gunn's really just living his best life right now. Yeah. I, I got to imagine those like, uh, you know, signings he does now. It's all just people oh, trying to daddy get scissors. ass and shit yeah. like that. And yeah, <laughs> tons of photos of him scissoring people. I'm sure. Uh-huh. I'm sure. And he's probably charging more for each one of those photos. And God bless him for it. He needs to give... Honestly, a cut to Danhausen because it was if it wasn't for Danhausen, because Danhausen coined the the name Daddy Ass for him oh. because you know his sons are the Ass Boys. So like, <laughs> it's cool to see when things like this in wrestling like happen so fucking uh-huh. like organically and get over to like this level. Um, do we think Keith Lee will be involved at all in Swerve and uh, Billy Gunn's match next week? I can't. I can't imagine that. Um, I think you see Swerve win, and then that, in turn, ends up being the way they get to, like, you know, the acclaim maybe, you know, accepting a rematch, uh, or just outright challenging uh, Swerve to our glory, you know, uh, to a tag match. It feels like they're trying to protect the image of Keith Lee and, you know, keep Swerve as the heel, and, you know, Mm -hmm. Lee is just kind of long for the ride, and, you know, kind of staying out of, like, you know, swerves antics exactly i mean even in that promo they did they made sure to say sneaky swerve and didn't say really anything about keith Keith lee Lee. right and he's never involved with like interrupting the acclaimed it's always just swerve on his own walking out there and that's absolutely by design uh after this we had a dark order video talking about you know how friday is going to be the anniversary of brody lee's last match and they talked about how it's going to be a trios title match since uh, everything got changed with andrade now part of me obviously feels like it's way too early to take those trios belts off of death triangle but at the same time like if you're evoking the name of brody lee it better be for a good reason and not just to get heat for Death Triangle. Because that feels like something WWE would do. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I, it's not to the extreme of, like, Randy Orton saying, like, Eddie Guerrero's in hell or anything like that. But, like, it, I don't know. There's something uncomfortable for me, like, using it for storyline purposes. So unless you know that this is going to be a big moment for the Dark Order, then fine. And maybe it's forgivable because of the situation with all the backstage drama uh, with Andrade being sent home. Um, so this match was kind of like a last minute thing, but I don't know. I just hope it's not a situation where Roosh and Private Party are the ones that like mess up this match for uh, the Dark Order. Because I could see them being the reason why they would not win the titles, you know, just so they can continue on that storyline. I could see Roosh. I just feel like right now, uh, private party is kind of like on a path of redemption. So they, they seem to be more resistant to like follow along with whatever, mm-hmm. where the hell this faction is called anymore. And then we had a backstage moment with Tony uh, interviewing uh, Mass and Rain and Sky Blue. Unfortunately, they didn't really get too many words in before Anna Jay and Ty Mello showed up. Yep, this happened. Yeah, I guess they're going to have a tag match on Rampage. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, Christian, if you have nothing nice to say. (laughs) Don't say it at all. This was was a little wooden, to say the least. Uh (laughs) I mean, I get it. You got to set up matches for Rampage. But I don't know if this segment did enough to, you know, get me interested in it. 
in the mm-hmm. long run. Like maybe you're probably actually better off without the segment happening. <laughs> At least it was followed up by Hangman versus Roosh, which uh, Hangman went over. Super hard hitting. I mean, Roosh is just a wild man. He feels dangerous. And like, for some reason, he reminds me a lot of Sabu in the ring. Uh, like, mm. it's not always going to look pretty, but it's sure the hell is going to be an entertaining match when Roosh is involved. Um, I thought it was smart to kind of like have the spotlight on Hangman here again, especially since we know he's going to be facing Moxley soon. Uh, And I love the promo afterwards uh, between Moxley and uh, Hangman. I thought it was a great way to kind of like set up a babyface versus babyface, you know, championship match in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it was definitely an awesome interaction between the two of them. I loved just Moxley just staring down Private Party to make them Uh leave as well. It was all great. It was a great segment. It did feel like at the end there was like a little dig towards Sammy. Yes. Right. hundred well, percent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Where like Moxley said something, I'm paraphrasing, but like he said something about like, you're, you're making the mistake that a lot of young kids do, uh, in this company, run their mouths, uh, you know, and get their ass beat. So it was like, <laughs> it's like, okay. Like, I mean, I didn't really do much for Hangman in that moment, uh-huh. but I, I think Moxley got his point across. But unfortunately, as we saw later on in, in the night, that message didn't apparently get to Tony Khan. Also, like, we had a cutaway to MJF with the poker chip during the Roosh and Hangman match. Um, I hate that they've turned this into, like, the money in the bank. Um, (laughs) I get it. Like, it makes sense for MJF's character, especially since he's so, like, Uh pro-WWE. But I don't know. And they they did it a lot less this episode of Dynamite. I think, I mean, part of that's because Moxley wasn't wrestling, but... Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Like, I, I want this just out of the way. Like, this aspect of the whole storyline just done with. Um, like, set up the match or, you know, pull the trigger already. I mean, if they do do a cash-in type of situation, I could see it being in Cincinnati just to get him over as, like, the heel over Moxley there. Yeah, okay. So then where do you go for the pay-per-view, though? Uh, I guess you have Moxley chasing back after, you know, MJF. I don't know, man. Like, I, I just... I don't feel like that's a big enough match. Like, they're going to have to do a lot of legwork to, like, make that feel like a big deal if that isn't the first time they're actually wrestling each other. Well, I mean, a cash in. I mean, if it's a match between it's Moxley versus uh, Paige, right? Yeah. And if it's a cash in, it's I know. 30 seconds, I hate you know? that though. Like, it, I just feel like it cheapens <laughs> the moments. Like, I would much rather see MGF actually like win the title in a wrestling match. Like, if they're gonna do that, I would much rather have him do it in the vein that Seth Rollins did at WrestleMania, where it actually becomes like. A, like a match and like Rollins actually becomes part of that match for at least a portion of it. Um, cause I, I just, it's more I, heel to go the ultimate opportunist way. Yeah. Though. But it's just not like it, for me, it feels like it puts more heat on the company than it does the heel. Like, I don't feel like, you know, one, I've seen the storyline for the last 20 years with WWE, uh-huh. you know? And it's like, when you just keep on redoing the same storyline over and over again, like WWE has, you know, with this gimmick, it gets old and stale. And I don't want that, like, bleeding over into AEW. So, like, I understand, like, oh, it makes him the ultimate, like, bastard. He's already at that level. Like, he doesn't need (laughs) anything else. 
Like, he doesn't need the cherry on the top. Like, he is the cherry on top. Like, you know, so it, it just, I don't know. It feels like it just cheapens the moment. I'd much rather have MJF win it in a match. Um, so, but I, I could totally see them going this route also. So, and I, I get wow. it. And it's just not for me. I hear you, but it just seems more what they would want to do with this at this point, you know? Well, and especially with the way they keep on beating us over the head uh-huh. with it. But I'm sure part of that is just hooking in viewers every week and trying to get them to watch. So I'm hoping that maybe, like, it's forced on MGF. Like, you know, he's like, no, okay, since you haven't cashed in yet, like, this isn't money in the bank. Like, there isn't, like, oh, you have a year or anything like that to cash it in. I was like, no, we're going to already, we're going to book the match for you. Like, since you're taking your sweet-ass time, you know, it's happening at full gear, and that's that. And that way, you know, MJF could throw a fit, and Moxley, you know, has, because Moxley has time to, like, plan for him and everything like that. Or he can go the, like, cheap heat way and be like, I'm cashing in, but it's for a match at, you know, full gear or whatever it's called in a month. Then he just looks stupid, though, right? (laughs) I guess. So I don't know. I don't know. We'll see what they do here because right now I have no clue what they're thinking. I think they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. I think they're just trying to give you the perception of, you know, oh, he can cash in at any time. And, you know, that it makes Dynamite must watch. But in reality, like, you know, it's going to happen at the pay-per-view. All right. Well, up next, Luchasaurus came out and destroyed Fuego Del Sol. This did nothing for me, Christian. Um, I'm just not buying Luchasaurus as a heel. So, yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I, I appreciate Jungle Boy's like, you know, delivery, I guess when he came out. I don't know. I don't feel like this is <laughs> doing him any favors. And I'd rather have them book, you know, Jungle Boy into something else right now, um, especially since we know that there's going to be no payoff to this feud mm. until like six, eight, six to eight months out, you know, because Christian isn't going to be ready to wrestle. So um, maybe they're just. Because this is happening, this match between Luchasaurus and Jungle Boy is happening next week, right, in Canada? Yes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's, like, their way of trying to, like, you know, get this out of the way, and then, you know, Jungle Boy can move on to something else, and then, yeah. you know, Christian goes off camera for a while. That's what I figured. Uh, no spoilers for us this week. AEW Rampage will be live, so the matches will be Death Triangle defending against uh, John Silver, Alex Reynolds, and Ten. And then Joss Woods and Tony Nese are going up against the Varsity Blondes. We have Madison Ray and Sky Blue versus Ty Mello and Anna Jay. And John Moxley, Wheeler, Yuta, and Claudio going up against Roosh at Private Party um, with Jose the Assistant. But all right, lastly, we had the main event, which was between the Ring of Honor World Champion Chris Jericho, the Ocho, and Sammy Guevara going up against Brian Danielson and the pure champion Daniel Garcia. All right, so let's get into the drama now. Uh, (laughs) Earlier this week, we Uh had Andrade do an interview where he called out Sammy Guevara, apparently... I don't know how it came about, but he talked about how the only person he's had issues with in AEW is Sammy, because I guess after their match together, Sammy was in the back complaining to others that Andrade hit him too hard. Um, Andrade confronted him about it, and Sammy said, I didn't say that and backed down. Um, Sammy caught wind of this interview. Uh, he escalated the drama online uh by attacking andrade 
mm. um, calling him a liar. Um, he said the only reason why Andrade is there is as a favor to his father-in-law, um, you know, and basically told him to fuck off and go back to WWE where he really wants to be. Then Andrade's assistant even got involved and said, uh, no, I was a witness. This did happen and this is how it all went down. <laughs> uh andrade then you know bluntly said and i'm gonna actually read his tweet so i get it right said uh i said it to your face if you had a problem with me and you said nothing i won't beat your ass because i'm a professional <laughs> oops uh don't be scared when i say something i name names and i'm not scared to get fired well Sammy needed to be scared because these two had a confrontation in the back, um, which is absolutely absurd to me, but I'll get into that in a little bit, uh, where th there were words exchanged. Uh, the first report said that Sammy pushed Andrade, and then there were punches thrown by Andrade. Um, there's no actual clarification if the, the punches actually landed, um, but Andrade was asked to leave. Uh, he was sent home and Sammy got to main event Dynamite for some reason. Now, the match obviously was already booked. Um, but if this first report is true, which there is some question out there whether or not that's the case, because I, I think the Wrestling Observer came out and said that a lot of people are disputing Sammy uh, pushing Andrade first. So, but if this report is true and Sammy did put hands on Andrade first and pushed him, then it makes absolutely no fucking sense whatsoever that Sammy yeah. wasn't sent home also. Especially in light of everything that's going on in your company right now with four of your biggest stars in the pending investigation uh, that's happening as we speak. <laughs> so um and even you know what honestly like one AEW has no one to blame but themselves because like this tweet the, this tweet exchange happened two days ago was it yesterday Christian yeah, right? yesterday right so Tuesday so like I mean they knew this was coming they knew mm -hmm. this confrontation was going to happen like there's no reason why AEW officials should have been at the door waiting for Andrade and Sammy to arrive and then like sweeping them up in the back and like having a sit down with them and like Tony Khan or whoever the fuck and squashing this before it escalates. You would think it would just be a no brainer, right? Like that that's how this situation uh -huh. needs to be handled. I mean, there should be no sane scenario <laughs> where like AEW officials are allowing Sammy and Andrade alone in a room together. You know, they should be sitting down and there should be someone mitigating, you know, peace between these two parties. <laughs> um, you know, once again, especially in light of what just took place at All Out. So once again, there's a giant spotlight being shined on just how inept management is in AEW. And don't get me wrong, like, through the history of wrestling, there's been fights in the locker room and issues that, you know, have taken place. But, like, you just had a situation 
where you lost some of your major stars because of confrontation like this taking place. And it's a huge black eye in the company. Um, and it could possibly cost AEW millions of dollars. So why would you put yourself in another situation like this again? Especially with a repeat offender right now with Sammy. Yes. And like, I mean, once, I mean, in fairness, it sounds like Sammy is just a fucking shit stirrer. You know, the <laughs> Kingston thing, Kingston has come out and said that he was in the wrong. He put hands on Sammy first. So it is what it is. But like, once Sammy puts out that tweet, blasting Andrade, you're on the phone with Sammy. Mm-hmm. Right? And you're trying to put out this fire right away. Like, the fact that they don't have some kind of, like, code of conduct clause, like, in their contracts, where, like, if you do anything on social media or publicly to hurt the image of AEW, like, you don't get suspended or fined is ridiculous. Because in the real world... Like, if you work for any corporation and you go on Facebook or Twitter and you start, like, blasting that corporation or you're doing something to shine a negative light on that corporation, like, there's going to be severe consequences for that. Like, people get fired over a lot less, Mm -hmm. you know, and calling out another employee on social media, and I know this is wrestling, and bad-mouthing them and telling them to, like leave the company because we all know you don't want to be here like that that definitely is shining a negative light on AEW. <laughs> and once again everything after everything that went down and all out that's the kind of attention you don't want so they really need to start tightening the leash on their employees because this kind of drama is just unacceptable and let's just say for the sake of argument sammy didn't push andrade and Andrade came into the room and just started to swing on Sammy. Sammy still instigated a situation where, like, th- that made all this possible. So there's no way, like, after this happened, with, you know, just the optics of how it looks, would I feature Sammy in the main <laughs> event of my fucking TV show? Like, I would make the switch right away and throw in Daddy Magic or Jake Hager or Cool Hand Ange. I mean, Jericho's part of a giant faction, so it's yes. not going to hurt the storyline. Sammy's not really featured in this storyline, right? You know, it's all about Garcia, Brian, and Jericho. Sammy's just kind of there for the parallels between Garcia and him, like himself. You know, both being kind of like students of Jericho. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's pretty much it. Like, the switch would have been easily done and easily explained away. And I think a lot of people would forgive it, you know, understandably so, after, you know, all the drama that just took place hours before the fucking show. <laughs> because obviously, AEW has a serious optics problem right now. And the fact that not only was Sammy in this match, but he was booked to go over Garcia. <laughs> And then, like, we end the show with Sammy on the shoulders of JAS celebrating this victory. (laughs) It really felt like they were trying to lean into the heat that they knew Sammy was going to have after this, you know, situation, which is just, I don't know, man, like, it's it's short-sighted. 
You know, because th- that heat, once again, yeah, it, I mean, Sammy's going to have tons of heat regardless. But then that heat also goes on to your company. You know, mm. because everyone starts questioning, why the hell would Tony Khan book this? Like, he just strips some of the top stars of their titles and haven't, hasn't even made a mention of it on TV. But we're going to have Sammy out here celebrating after he literally just had a fight in the locker room hours before. It just makes no sense, and it just opens yourself up for a whole lot of criticism, and rightfully so. And I would argue, too, that, you know, Sammy being involved in this match actually really hurt the storyline. Because the crowd was solely focused on Sammy. I mean, Sammy, every time he got in the ring, you know, was... Mark Because every time he got in the ring, they were chanting, Fuck you, Sammy! Uh-huh. <laughs> they could really like give a shit about the storyline within the match, which is supposed to be all about Garcia and Jericho and Brian once again. But instead, it was Sammy who was put over here. Um, it, it just it, it made no sense from any standpoint that you look at it. Um, you know, and then like when Sammy would pull off some insane like high fly move, they would chant, "You still suck afterwards," <laughs> <laughs> which was amazing. Don't get me wrong, but my god, like the match, like the story of the match became all about Sammy, and you put the bow on top of that with having Sammy being carried out by the Jericho Appreciation Society at the end. <laughs> For getting the pin. Now, I'm sure in Tony's mind was like, oh, well, this will lead between a super hot match between Daniel Garcia and Sammy uh, at a later date. And, you know, obviously Garcia will end up going over. Well, that's great, like wrestling booking logic. Mm -hmm. Sure. But that's if the storyline was a work. But this isn't a fucking work as far as. But a lot of reliable sources are reporting that this did indeed happen. So. We're going to, you know, take that for what it is then. So we're going to take it at face value and just assume that it's true. Um, But regardless, Sammy getting all this like nuclear level heat isn't worth the negative narrative being amplified about AEW. Because they were just kind of starting to rebound after everything that went down it all out. And now that's all like front and center again and just imagine like andrada who like in that same interview that we talked about earlier was already laughing at his treatment in AEW so far you know like he's just not watched someone he's feuding with in real life get, <laughs> literally just win the main get event rewarded almost right exactly because that's the way it just feels like a slap because even you know? if the match was already booked that way like visually it it feels like Guevara got rewarded for getting into this fight, you know, mm-hmm. hours before the show. So there's no way that you can get past that perception. So that's why you take Sammy out of the match and plug someone else in. I mean, all this could have been avoidable. Like, yes, it's very bizarre to me. It's just very bizarre to me that Tony would be so blind to book himself into this situation. And I mean, mm. To top things off, it's a situation that could have been completely avoided if AEW officials actually did their fucking jobs. I mean, maybe they needed a steal there to, like, bite Sammy and Andrade, you know, before any punches were thrown. I don't know. I mean, there is a, like, talent relations, right? Like, yes, they have, like, yes. people that... Okay. They just restructured the whole company. Uh-huh. So there's a whole, like, hierarchy <laughs> of officials back there who are supposed to be there cool. to prevent shit like this from going down. 
So, I mean, apparently, once again, they're not doing their fucking job. At least dock some pay, you know, like every time this happens. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, uh, okay, I'll give them credit. Like when the Kingston thing went down, they at least suspended Kingston, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have talent, you know, going after a, a, another talent. Great. But <laughs> I don't know, man. Like all this is so short-sighted. Like, like this was preventable. Like it was, it was incredibly preventable and they still let it fucking happen. I, I, I just don't get it. I don't, I don't know if it's a case where like Tony needs a bad cop back there with him. You know, someone who can like lay down the law and that people really <laughs> respect because it just feels like Tony wants to be everyone's friend and it's mm-hmm. it's not doing him any favors right now. But I mean, the match itself was fine. You know, I, I thought it was yeah. enjoyable. I mean, the story within the match was, you know, what the story that they were trying to get over in the match, you know, made sense. Uh, I'm looking forward to Brian versus Jericho next week. Um, that's taking place in Canada, so there'll be an interesting reaction. Because uh, I feel like Jericho is going to be a hundred percent like the babyface um, to that audience. So I think he's going over. So would that be three losses for Brian? I don't know, man. Because it, it feels like it's too soon to take the belt off of Jericho. Yeah. So unless you have the big turn here, you know, you have Garcia side with Jericho, turn on Brian. Because it feels like something big has to go down for Brian to lose again against Jericho. Brian did beat Jericho in that tournament, so it'd be his second loss to Jericho. Okay, um, but still, it feels like too many losses in a row for Brian since he just lost mm. uh, the title match against Moxley. And I know, like Brian, doesn't give a shit about losing whatsoever i mean he was losing left and right um over on smackdown and wwe i mean he took a pin to fucking uh drew goulash goulash am i saying his i think i'm saying his name wrong but it's it's three o'clock in the morning i don't give a shit um (laughs) goulash goo whatever Uh, Um, he's irrelevant yeah (laughs) that's not nice christian (laughs) sure the man has feelings and family (laughs) it'll be interesting to see how that match plays out so um I still don't truly buy that Garcia has totally broken away from JAS. And I feel like they were hinting at that tonight, especially like in the way even tonight, like Garcia still feels really conflicted. And even Jericho, like Jericho, you know, had a couple like looks in like Garcia's direction where you could tell he wasn't necessarily happy that this match was even taking place. And that all could be just, you know, a, a super heel trying to manipulate another heel. But regardless, mm-hmm. I feel like those moments and layers are, you know, there for a reason. So I feel like they're going, you know, that's all going to play out somehow. Like this story is long from over. And honestly, like right now, it's been fun and I don't want it to end. Like I want to s- continue with this whole like Ring of Jericho storyline and everything. I think it's the best thing that's happened to ROH since Tony's bought the company. I think for me at this point, I feel like they're just going to go the easy route and they're going to have Daniel Garcia just remain face going forward. Um, I, I don't know why I don't like, I feel like they're just not going to do the swerve. I don't know if I've just been burned I don't by storylines in the past. I don't even what. think it's necessarily a swerve. You know, I, I think they're they're playing up the fact that he's conflicted. So I don't I don't know if I would I would classify it as a swerve, if you will. I think it's just another case, once again, of Jericho loving these, like, long-form stories. Um, 
So I could see him siding with Jericho for one night and then like, you know, eventually like, you know, breaking off from, you know, JS at the end of the day. Or it goes down like you say, and, you know, Garcia's done with JAS. Um, I just feel like this story is long from over at this point. I'm sure we'll be talking about it next June. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not out of the question. I mean, the MJF Jericho feud lasted a full year. Yeah. And like the Kingston Jericho feud, I, I it had to be at least eight months. Is it even really still over? I, you know? I don't think they, they could revisit <laughs> that at any time. Like I wouldn't be surprised if Kingston doesn't somehow get involved in all this, especially since he was just feuding with uh, Guevara. If that did happen, you know Tony Khan would probably just feature him in the next like main event. So oh yeah, you know world champion because there's there. no such thing as repercussions in AEW. So. <laughs> Yeah, he, right, he'd yes. probably strap him up. You're right. <laughs> That's how he earns his title, his title reign. Yes, um, I'm all for the longevity of the current storyline with Garcia. But let's stop Sammy Guevara from fucking up anything else. Yeah, no, someone definitely needs to have a very long talk with him. So, yes. Anyway, that does it for this week. Uh, join us next week as we talk some more AEW. Well, that does it for this week. That's right, and as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some Amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Well, all right, Damon, what are we talking about next week? Well, join us next week as we continue to celebrate Horror Month by counting down our favorite horror films of the 1990s. Uh, We'll also be breaking down the the latest episodes of She-Hulk and Andor. Plus, we're going to have reviews for Werewolf by Night and Hellraiser, along with more AEW talk. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. As far as my wife is concerned, uh, I'm sure she'll be absolutely fascinated when I tell her about it. She's a uh, confirmed ghost story and horror film addict. (laughs) 